70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, I'm Dave Paywin, a KBS World Radio show fan from Malaysia. I started tuning in to KBS World Radio show on August 17, 2021 using the Kong app. I fell in love with One Fine Day with Inapa and K-pop connection from the very first day I started tuning in and ever since then I've been tuning in religiously every day, rain or shine. Uh, you know before I started listening to KBS World Radio Show, I was not into K-pop and I knew nothing about K-pop. But uh, after listening to One Fine Day and K-pop connection for 16 months now, can you believe it? I even won a K-pop quiz organized by my company's team building. And I'm so fascinated by what I hear about Korea on KBS World Radio Shows that I decided to visit your beautiful country in October 2022. And I finally get to enjoy the beautiful autumn that the radio DJs often talk about. Uh, and I would like to thank KBS World Radio um, for producing all these amazing radio shows so that we international fans not only um, get to enjoy K-pop, but also everything about Korea. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. Thank you. Bye-bye. 70 years with KBS World Radio. 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Friday the 27th of January and welcome to another edition of Crow24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. New projections have forecast that the National Pension Fund will completely run dry by 2055, two years earlier than initially projected. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. For weekly economy review, we discuss the recent surge in heating bills and the government's move to increase energy subsidies in response. And then coming up on Movie Spotlight, we review Jongi, the new science fiction thriller from director Yun Sang-ho, and a stop-motion animation called Motherland. We have all that and more on today's Career 24. Experts have released an updated forecast regarding the National Pension Fund and in, an alarm, and in an alarming outlook, they have predicted that the fund will begin to run a deficit from the year 2041 and completely run dry by 2055, two years earlier than previously thought. Our KBS World Radio news editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to brief us on the new data as well as the rest of the day's headlines. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So this revised outlook comes as President Yoon Sung-yeol has been expounding on the dire need to restructure the pension fund in recent months. And it has become more urgent as factors including the continuing declining childbirths, which we talked about yesterday, mm-hmm. has accelerated the situation. What can you tell us about the latest projections? 
well, uh, an expert committee dedicated to estimating pension-related finances issued the grim outlook on Friday based on the current pace and the absence of reforms. It is the fifth such projections uh, that has been released every five years since 2003. According to that assessment, uh, the existing pension uh, system, assuming that it maintains its current structure, will see more revenue than expenditure for the next 17 years or so. Um, funds currently at 915 trillion won will most likely peak at around 1,755 trillion won in 2040. However, starting the following year, expenses will outpace revenue and the pension fund will likely dry up by 2055, two years faster than the previous estimate issued in 2018. The latest prediction uh, factors in population and the economy, but compared to five years ago, the outlook has become more grim due to an ageing society and worse off macroeconomic conditions. The number of babies born in South Korea hit yet another monthly record low of 18,982 in November. Yes, with these figures further supporting President's calls to reform the pension, we'll see how the administration responds in the coming days. Turning to other matters, President Yun has stressed the importance of preparing for unification of the two Koreas. That's according to the unification minister. Can you tell us more? Well, Minister Kwon Yong-se relayed the remarks made by Yun during the ministry's New Year policy briefing held at the former presidential office of Cheongwade on Friday. Yun said that preparation is key to unification and that it will not come without effort. Yun's remarks come after the North amped up tensions on the Korean peninsula with a string of intercontinental ballistic missile tests last year and incursions into the South's airspace with spy drones. The president said it, it was important to uh, properly inform the South Korean people and the international community about North Korea's politics, economy, culture and society, and especially human rights conditions in the regime. Yun called on the ministry to play a bigger role in sharing such information, even with those in North Korea. Kwan's briefing to Yun included the ministry's plans to seek increased contact with North Korea and efforts to improve human rights. This includes pursuing direct and indirect contact through civic groups and international organizations in a bid to diffuse strained inter-Korean relations. Kwon also outlined the ministry's plans to fine-tune a detailed action plan for Yoon's proposal for an audacious initiative unveiled last year, which promises economic aid to Pyongyang in return for denuclearization steps. North Korea has balked at Yoon's offer. Speaking of human rights, I understand North Korea has criticised South Korea's human rights record at a United Nations session, Heejin. Indeed. During the Universal Periodic Review of South Korea at the UN office in Geneva on Thursday, the North Korean ambassador to the UN, Han Tae-sung, expressed deep concerns over what he called the ongoing systematic and widespread violations of human rights in South Korea. The UPR is a process through which all UN member states have the opportunity to review 
the human rights records of all other member states. Uh, the North's Ambassador Han recommended South Korea to abolish the provocative North Korean Human Rights Act and the national security law and other evil laws claiming that they run counter to the international human rights statutes. Han also advised South Korea to devise measures to secure permanent resolution on the issue of Japan's wartime sexual slavery and forced labour from the victim's perspective. The South Korean delegation rejected Han's recommendation of abolishing the North Korean Human Rights Act, saying that the act was enacted in 2016 in consideration of deep deep concerns by the international community over the human rights conditions in the North. Yes, meanwhile, we'll see what other conclusions come from the UPR over South Korea's human rights situation. Moving on, from Monday, South Korean residents will finally be able to say goodbye to masks in most areas of their lives as the blanket indoor mask mandate will be lifted. There are some exceptions, but authorities also continue to urge the public, especially those deemed at high risk, to get vaccine booster shots. In the meantime... Can you remind us of what's to come? Well, starting Monday, the indoor mask mandate will become a recommendation at most facilities. This includes restaurants, shopping malls and places of work. However, the mandate will remain effective for high-risk facilities such as nursing homes, hospitals, pharmacies and on uh, public transportation. In line with this transition, health authorities urged those at risk, such as seniors, people with a weakened immune system or underlying diseases to get booster shots if they have not done so already. 31,711 additional people tested positive for COVID-19 in the latest daily uh, count-up and around 4,000 compared to a week earlier. Out of the new cases, 49 were from overseas, including 20 from China. Authorities attribute uh, the jump to a hangover effect from less testing during the Lunar New Year holiday and said the virus indicators show the situation in the country remains stable. And finally, finishing up with some political news, the main opposition Democratic Party slammed the prosecution for being prejudiced a day before party leader Lee Jae-myung is set to appear for questioning on his alleged role in the Sungnam development scandal. Meanwhile, the ruling People Power Party called on the opposition leader to quietly cooperate in the prosecution's investigation into his allegations. Can you tell us more? Well, at a Supreme Council meeting on Friday, DP floor leader Park Hong-gun accused the prosecution for being politically motivated in devising an investigation aimed at covering up the administration's incompetence and weaknesses. Park claimed that the state agency was deliberately leaking distorted information to sway the media, fishing for a witch-hunt-like trial. He also claimed that tyranny had reached a level unheard of even during military dictatorship. Prosecutors suspect that Lee, while uh, serving as mayor of the Gyeonggi provincial city of Songnam, helped private investors reap 440 billion won in profits from development projects while incurring losses for the city government. They suspect that he uh, facilitated his aides, including then chief policy advisor Chong Jin-sang, in embezzling 42.8 billion won, as well as manipulating election campaign funds in return for business uh, favours. He is also accused of either contributing to or condoning the leak of internal information by his aides to private investors regarding Weide Newtown development project in 2013 that helped them win orders. 
at a party meeting on Friday. Ruling a PPP floor leader, Chu Ho-young accused Yi of seeking political cover by visiting his liberal stronghold of the southern Jeolla province before his summons, adding that if he is innocent, he has nothing to fear. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Amid a recent brutal cold spell, many South Korean households were caught flat-footed by a steep hike in heating bills led by rising gas prices. To help cope with this situation, the government dropped plans to reduce the financial burden on the public, especially vulnerable groups, by providing subsidies and discounts. To examine the situation and review the government's response, as well as delve into changes being planned for foreign investors in the local stock market, economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea joins us now for our weekly economy review. Professor Yang, hello. It's uh, good to have you back with us again. Happy to be here. So, According to the Korea City Gas Association on Wednesday, the retail price of gas in Seoul this month was up 38.4% on year. The wholesale price of gas for households also went up 42% last year. The root cause has been the global energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. That pushed the cost of South Korea's LNG imports to a record high of over $56 billion last year. So, Professor, a lot of people in Korea were shocked when they opened their latest gas bills. <laughs> uh, so much so that's become a political issue as well, but we won't get into that today. How do you view the situation this shouldn't have been a surprise, right? This is something that's been brewing for a while. Exactly. And the uh, rise in prices were inevitable. Not only has the price of gas went up, but the record core this year means that uh, more gas and energy will be used, even if you kept the temperature at the same level as last year, because it just takes more energy to bring your uh, uh, temperature up to the point where you're comfortable. Mm. Uh, so uh, the rise in prices uh, are due to both the rise in price and rise of the uh, energy, the volume that you use. Mm. Uh, but, uh, of course, the uh, big uh, interest here, the focus is on uh, price of natural gas. Uh, you mentioned the Korean domestic price for uh, natural gas, but let's just look at how the uh, price of gas has taken a roller coaster ride in the last two years. The uh, lowest point was actually in June 2020 when it was only about $1.70 for million uh, BTUs. Uh, and this was, in a sense, artificially low because this was right after the uh, beginning of the pandemic mm. uh, when all the commodity prices, including oil and gas, were down substantially. But then, get this, September 2021, the price rose to 560 And this was before the uh, Ukraine invasion. Right. Uh, now, uh, last year, one year ago, January 27th, natural gas prices were settling down a bit at 425 uh, per million BTUs. And then the invasion began and the prices rose as uh, high as 968 in August before falling. Currently, it's actually about 290. So if we just look at the current prices, it shouldn't have uh, risen all that much. Mm. But the problem is all the time when the uh, gas prices were incredibly high, we did not raise the prices to match it, especially consumer uh, 
natural gas. Right. Uh, so at one point it was up as much as nine, ten times uh, the price uh, that you mentioned, uh, the lowest price you mentioned earlier right. before the pandemic. Uh, so uh, the uh, Korea Gas Corporation has piled up a huge uh, debt. Uh, it reportedly, it's about nine trillion won, hmm. and there's something I like to call conservation of loss. Some, once you incur a loss, somebody eventually has to pay it. Mm. And now the uh, government has been sort of punting down the line, uh, not only this administration, but the previous administration. Uh, but eventually it's going to have to come due, and it's came due. Um, now, uh, previous governments have been reluctant to raise prices uh, the Moon administration because of the difficulties during the pandemic. Right. And then the uh, Yoon government because they didn't want to add additional factors to already high inflation. But again, you still have to pay the piper sometime. Right. Now, the uh, government's sort of excuse is that, yes, we have uh, rising gas prices. Korean gas prices have rose by somewhere between 23 to 60 percent, uh, but it's nowhere near as high as, say, the United States, which in the last year, the uh, gas prices rose by 3.3 times, mm. uh, UK by 2.6 times, and Germany by 3.6 times, so th more than 200 uh, percent. So compared to them, we're doing Okay, supposedly. Right. Uh, but still, uh, as I said, because of the record cold, we not only have higher prices, but higher volume used. And uh, people are uh, getting, uh, getting a really big shock over their heating bills in the last month. Uh, but because of that $9 trillion won loss, we're probably going to have to raise the prices even more. So some uh, analysts are saying, uh, February will be worse, especially if the uh, cold continues. Uh, now, uh, is it wise to delay the inevitable by freezing prices? Well, you're delaying the price increase until later. Mm. Uh, and economists usually don't like that idea. Mm. Uh, and the reason is that, as I said, eventually somebody's going to have to pay the bill. It may be the consumers or it may be the government which uh, needs to finance these losses through taxes, but eventually somebody will have to pay it. And if you keep the prices artificially low, uh, then people are going to use more of it. Right. So if we raised the prices, say, last year or earlier this year, maybe people would have used, found a way, better way to conserve elect, uh, uh, energy uh, so that it wouldn't hit as hard and price increases would not have taken place all at once because... Uh, you, uh, when you delay increasing the prices, when the uh, costs continue to increase, well, you, eventually you're going to have to increase it, and you're going to have to increase it more the longer you hold down prices. So economists usually don't like that, uh, but politicians, on the other hand, they would like to pass the buck to the uh, next people in charge sure. as long as mm. they can. Well, as you said, this was a long time coming. Uh, there was very little choice, it seems, for the government to uh, raise prices. But as a public concern over the heating bills gathered momentum this week, on Thursday, the presidential office unveiled plans to provide greater energy subsidies and discounts on gas bills for vulnerable groups. It was announced that for households in poverty and living on welfare, the amount that they can get in energy vouchers will be doubled to 304,001. That's about 250 US dollars. In addition, the maximum discount on gas bills will also be doubled to 72,001 for 1 1.6 million vulnerable households. That's about 60 US dollars. 
Professor, what's your take on these measures? Okay, well, textbook economics usually say that let the prices reflect the current situation. Uh, and if you have to uh, help people who are negatively impacted by these prices, give them subsidies. That's not uh, perhaps not uh, the best solution that you can have, but it's better than controlling prices. Mm. Uh, and the reason is what I said earlier, if you keep the prices artificially low, people will spend uh, more on it. Uh, consume more of it. And you don't really want to do that right now in this type of situation when the gas prices or oil prices uh, are fairly high. Um, now, uh, the problem here, though, is that uh, will the subsidies be enough? And that, uh, I think, really depends on how cold the winter continues to be. Mm. So that brings up the next question. If the uh, subsidies turn out to be too low, or if some people are sort of fell through the cracks, uh, can the welfare authorities act quickly enough? Can the government act quickly enough so that people who uh, are sort of fall behind the cracks, uh, be, uh, uh, between the cracks, uh, the government can get aid to them very quickly before they freeze? And that I'm a lot concerned about because, well, Korean government has not been known, especially in the welfare area, to be mm. very fast. Well, on top of that, the issue for many people in Korea at the moment is that this surge in heating bills comes at a time when the price of everything seems to be going up. Inflation has been soaring. Public transport, such as subways, buses and taxis, are set to uh, rise. Uh, the cost of them are set to rise in the months to come, all while wages are staying the same, essentially. Is there anything more that you think the government can do to help minimise the burden on the public, especially for those in vulnerable groups, or is this just a period where we have to tighten our belts? We have to tighten our belts because this is a result of trying to alleviate the problem in the past. The reason that we're raising the prices now is because we did not raise the prices in the past. So we've sort of said that, well, uh, maybe it'll be better to raise it later. Uh, as I said, uh, last year we had the inflation. Uh, so let's not pile it on there. Let's delay it until later. And that's what's happening. Uh, we may be able to delay it even more. But that would uh, require really extraordinary measures. Uh, I mentioned Korea Gas has about nine billion uh, trillion won worth of uh, uh, losses. Kepco faces losses about thirty trillion, and the uh, losses are so big that they're not only affecting just the electricity or the energy market; it's uh, affecting financial markets. Uh, we've talked about how uh, some companies, especially construction companies, have hard time financing themselves right now. And part of that problem is because, well, uh, because KEPCO has to finance its losses, because Korea Gas has to finance its losses, because the government has to finance its deficits because it ran a very high deficit last year, they're all borrowing money from the bond market. So it's crowding out uh, private companies from getting funding. Uh, so uh, yes, maybe uh, we can delay the problem even further, but that means more distortion in the bond markets. That means higher prices later on. Uh, so we've sort of made a trade-off. Instead of having higher inflation last year, we're, ha we're going to uh, switch it for a longer period of inflation. And again, the price is coming due. This is perhaps most clear in the uh, transit 
uh, public transportation in Seoul. Uh, the buses and metro has been running in the red for a long time. Sure. And now they're considering that they will have to raise the prices by at least 300 to 401, and even right. that's not going to be enough. Well, with the cost of living becoming a growing political talking point at the moment, I'm sure we'll be discussing more about these issues in the months to come. Uh, but for now, let's just look at one more topic today, and that's to do with the stock market. Earlier this week, South Korea's Financial Services Commission announced that it plans to scrap the existing mandatory registration policy for foreigners investing in local stocks uh, within this year to increase foreign investment. Currently, foreigners are required to file personal information with local financial authorities before purchasing listed Korean stocks. This has been cited as an example of excessive regulations for foreigners seeking to invest in Korea. Uh, and it doesn't exist in other markets like the US, Japan and Germany. So, Professor, why was this system in there in the first place? And do you think this move will help attract foreign uh, investment. Well, this law is based on a 1992 law, and if you uh, can remember back to 1992, Korea was not that excited about having a lot of foreign investors. We were, in that sense, very protectionist about uh, domestic capital markets. Uh, but uh, Korea has been opening the market, especially after the Asian financial crisis, because Korea realized we needed a lot of investment fairly quickly. Uh, arguably, that uh, desire to have a lot more investment sort of died down in the 2000s and 2010s. Uh, but right now, because we're facing uh, economic slowdown uh, this year, uh, and because maybe we've seen some examples like the United States and European Union uh, just doing everything it can to attract Korean investment, uh, that perhaps uh, we should loosen the uh, investment barriers more. So uh, we are getting uh, at least a bill seeks to get rid of foreign uh, registering foreign investors, right? Uh, and also for uh, large companies, uh, they would uh, require information in English, uh, and this is uh, from a different uh, legal bill. Uh, but we talked about having a designated head of Chebar or conglomerates, mm. and they're thinking about reviewing the case because when there's a, when a foreign firm uh, owns the conglomerate, uh, it's sometimes very difficult to have a foreigner uh, listed as a designated head. So apparently, federal tra- uh, the uh, Fair Trade Commission is seeking to review that as well. Do you think it will help the situation and get more foreign investment in? In the long term, yes, uh, because it will reduce the borders. Uh, to barriers for investment, okay. but in the short term, probably not much. We're out of time, so we'll leave it there, Professor Yang. As always, thank you for your analysis. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 15.37 points or 0.62% on Friday to close the week at 2,484.02. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 2.31 points or 0.31% to close at 741.25. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.61 against the dollar, closing at 1,231.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. 
And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Django. It's good to see you. Yes. Happy Friday, Diane. Happy Friday. Okay. So what topics do you have for us today? Well, first, we'll discuss a controversy over whether to introduce a law on punishment for sexual assault that has been under discussion for years. We'll also learn why some contestants of Squid Game The Challenge require medical attention. And finally, we'll round out the segment with a baseball story as a South Korean pitcher has signed with Major League Baseball's Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay, let's dive right into that first story then, a situation that caused quite a stir yesterday. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more? So debate has resurfaced over whether to introduce a law that seeks to penalize any non-consensual sexual act carried out without violence or threats as sexual assault. The Ministry of Gender and Equality and Family announced on Thursday that it would seek to introduce such a law but withdrew its statement just nine hours later in the face of opposition from the Justice Ministry. Initially, in its announcement, the Gender Equality Ministry said that together with the Justice Ministry, it will consider introducing the so-called No Means No Act, which some say it's necessary as the current law on sexual assault is not enough to protect victims. However, following the announcement, the Justice Ministry said it has no plans for such a law. Right, so under current law, non-consexual sex cannot be penalized as sexual assault unless it's carried out with violence or threats. That's correct. So the Gender Equality Ministry announced that it would look to change that yesterday, but then the Justice Ministry stepped in and refuted that. Mm -hmm. So what was the Justice Ministry's argument in imposing the rule? Well, it said that the matter requires a comprehensive review, including sufficient discussion among all sectors of society, citing that the issue is related to the basic structure of sex crimes. Voices opposing the law also emerged from the political sector. Representative Kwon Song-dong of the ruling People Power Party said, with such a law, people could be falsely accused after engaging a consensual sex. Mm. So what did the Gender Equality Ministry say in withdrawing its early announcement? Uh, it said the government currently has no plans to review related laws to introduce such a rule. It also noted that the topic has been under discussion since 2015 and is not one that is being newly pursued or considered by the Yoon sung administration. So it looks like there was major miscommunication within the administration mm-hmm. yesterday. It looks like the No Means No Act will not be seeing the light of day anytime soon, at least not with, uh, not without a lot of uh, discussion. Uh, that will be considered a major step back, though, for women's rights groups, right. unfortunately. OK, let's uh, move on. What's our second story about? Last June, we talked on our show about Netflix's plan to hold a reality competition show based on the mega-hit Korean series Squid Game with $4.56 million or almost $6 billion won in prize money up for grabs. Our second story this week is about how some contestants of the show called Squid Game The Challenge required medical attention on Monday due to freezing temperatures on set. According to American technology news website The Verge on Thursday, of the 456 contestants, fewer than five players are reported to have required medical attention, and at least one contestant was stretchered off. Wow, this uh, reality show was meant to be inspired by the show, not 
emulate it in right. its uh, physical harm of the contestants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, how cold was the set exactly, and where was it located? The show is currently being filmed at a studio in central England. At that location on Monday, temperatures stood at minus one degree Celsius while filming a game of red light, green light. The Verge quoted one contestant as saying to a British media outlet that even if hypothermia kicked in, then people were willing to stay for as long as possible because a lot of money was on the line. Hmm. Take note that Squid Game The Challenge is offering the largest cash prize in uh, reality TV history to one of its 456 competitors, which itself is another record-breaking number, being the largest cast ever on a reality TV show. The report added that some of the players are not British residents and may not be used to be uh, used to the British winter. Right, though uh, minus one degree Celsius is not that cold. I can tell you that you can get quite windy, though. Yes. Uh, meaning that it can feel a lot colder uh, than Mercury readings suggest. Mm-hmm. You can feel that way anyway. Uh, but still, it is unusual to hear that someone had been stretched off uh, right. for someone in that temperature. Has there been any word from Netflix on these reports? In a statement shared with US Variety magazine, a spokesperson for Netflix said any claims of serious injury are untrue, saying that though it was very cold on set, participants were prepared for it. It went on to say that it cares deeply about the health and safety of its cast and crew and invested in all the appropriate safety procedures. Yes, we certainly hope that is the case. In the meantime, it looks like they're getting quite a lot of publicity mm-hmm. as well. OK, let's move on to our final story for today, and it's coming from the world of sports. Right. South Korea's right-handed pitcher Shim Jun-seok has signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates in the major. Uh, in a ceremony marking his entry at his new team's home park, PNC Park, on Thursday, Shim said he's thrilled to be a part of the team and can't wait to take the mound, adding that it's been his dream to play in the U.S. The 18-year-old decided to enter the MLB right out of high school instead of playing in the Korea baseball organization. So he skipped the KBO rookie draft last year. Okay, so he's young, a future prospect. Uh, What do we know of Shim's contract? According to local media outlets, the Pirates signed Shim for $750,000 U.S. dollars or $900 million won, the third, third largest amount handed out by the Major League Club to an international amateur player for the signing period. Describing Shim as the number 10 prospect of this year's international class, the MLB's official website, MLB.com, said Thursday that Shim would have been one of the top selections, if not the first overall pick, in the KBO draft if he had remained in South Korea. The website added that Shim had been on the Pirates' radar dating back to 2020. Right, so it sounds like they've had high hopes for him for a while. Uh, What are some of his strengths that drew the Pirates to scout the young player? Junior Vizcaino, the Pirates' director of international scouting, cited that Shim's fastball has hop, giving off the illusion that the pitch is rising due to its spin and velocity. The young talent's signature fastball, as well as a knee-buckling curveball, have drawn him strong attention since starting at Toksu High School in Seoul. Before ending his 2022 season prematurely due to a toe injury, Shim had posted a 1.42 ERA and 32 strikeouts in 19 innings in 2020. Shim is the third South Korean player to join the Pirates organization alongside first baseman Choi Ji-man and infield prospect Pei Ji-hwan, who made his big league debut late last season. Right, so they have experience working with Korean players. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a huge jump up, so we shouldn't expect too much too soon, but it looks like he could be a very exciting prospect to look out for Mm -hmm. indeed. 
OK, we'll wrap it up there for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jamal. Have a good weekend. It's once again time for Movie Spotlight, our weekly dive into the world of Korean cinema and reviews of the latest cinematic releases at the Korean box office and online. And we do that, of course, with the help of our panel of critics. Joining us today, first, we have Jason Bechevis. Jason, hello. It's good to hello, see you. Hello, Jaya. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Happy Friday. And we have Darcy Paquette with us as well. Darcy, hello to you too. Hi, happy to be here. Okay, two local releases again this week, which is what we like. Today we start with a new feature film financed and released by the streaming giant Netflix. It's called Tongi in both Korean and English, but uh, with the letter E in English. It's a science fiction thriller by Yun Sang-ho, who is the director of Train to Busan and the series Hellbound as well. It debuted this week as Netflix's most-watched non-English language film across the world. Jason, can you introduce it for us? Yeah, this is the latest in kind of Netflix dystopian uh, fare. It's set in the 22nd century. It's in a time, you know, where much of humanity has uh, relocated to, to shelters kind of orbiting around the Earth due to destruction, you know, brought on by guess what? climate change <laughs> and so a, a civil war has been taking place for decades and many believe that the only thing that can really end this war uh is is technology you know artificial intelligence and the film focuses essentially on uh, a small team of researchers trying to uh you know recreate uh, humanity's you know greatest warrior or soldier uh, she's called as a woman called jungi uh, she failed in a first mission, uh, and so they've got this, you know, this this experiment essentially to try and kind of uh, bring her back to life. Mm. And uh, in 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 a twist that's actually revealed quite early on, uh, the researcher leading this effort effort is uh, none other than Jungi's old uh, own daughter, rather, who's now grown into an adult. Okay, so themes relating to artificial intelligence, environmental destruction and uh, future forms of warfare. Darcy, all fairly familiar items, we would say, ideas that have been explored in Hollywood films uh, before for decades even, dating back to Blade Runner and beyond. But when it comes to, I guess, a familiar setup, I guess we're looking to see whether it brings anything new to the table or whether it uh, rehashes those old tropes well. Does... Chongyi do that? Does Chongyi bring any new ideas to the table? You know, I've been thinking, trying to come up with something new. Um, you know, I guess, I mean, no is the short answer. No, there's nothing new. I mean, um, that is one of the ways to judge, you know, science fiction works is, you know, does it have any new ideas? And science fiction is described as a genre of ideas. But I don't envy the task given to screenwriters of science fiction because, you know, so many ideas have been explored over the years. And, you know, as technology continues to develop, you know, you get slightly different takes on it. But basically, there's a limited number of ideas in the world. Uh, and so I think the key to science fiction is taking familiar ideas and then presenting it in a way that makes them feel fresh. Mm. You know, even if they, they may not 
be completely unique right. or groundbreaking. Uh, and I do think that's one thing that the film sort of failed to to do here, that it does feel quite familiar, both in terms of the, you know, the visuals and the way that the, the ideas are presented. And, um, you know, it's not that the ideas themselves aren't thought provoking in themselves, but, um, but yeah, if you've seen a lot of science fiction already, then uh, you'll kind of be nodding your head. Right. So overall, it's a, a disappointing watch then. I mean, yes, for me, it was. Uh, it's been really interesting to see the reaction to this because there are defenders of this film. Um, you know, certainly in terms of special effects, I think that it's impressive that, you know, a, a production that despite being financed by Netflix was, you know, produced in Korea, it it is on a big scale and, you know, it looks quite impressive in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, to me, I, I had a hard time really getting into the story. I mean, to me, it was a script issue. Uh, and not only the fact that it was kind of lacking anything particularly unique in terms of its ideas, but also in terms of storytelling. Uh, there's a lot of kind of failed tests that we're watching throughout much of the film, and the the story doesn't seem to have a lot of forward momentum. It doesn't mm. seem to be moving really anywhere. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere for an hour, uh, actually, and I think this is part of the problem because, it, to me, it almost felt like the first episode of a, a series for, mm. for, for the first hour, absolutely. And then for the final hour, sorry, final, what, 30, 40 minutes, mm. then it kind of really kicks into gear. And it right. feels, you know, you've got the kind of climatic sequence, the kind of the cathartic, you know, kind of response and all the rest of it. But it, it just it just doesn't really gel. And so structurally, there are several issues with the film. Uh, and also, I think one of the bigger issues with sci-fi in Korea is that directors love science fiction. They've got a huge appetite for it but they really struggle to localize it. Mm. And this film, there is no reference to Korea in the film whatsoever. Right. And I'm not saying that there has to be like all this kind of political intrigue or, you know, delving into social issues. But I think for me, as someone who's just been following Korean cinema for two decades now, and I, I love the way directors are able to kind of bring in the, in the culture, the history. Um, and it's, there, there is nothing in that regard in this film. And for me, that was kind of quite a shame and I think it also underscored the difficulties that Korean directors have with science fiction it's not a genre that really has worked well in Korea in fact the only successful films are by Bong Joon-ho uh, sure. you know, the host and Snowpiercer it is interesting especially in recent years uh, Korean cinema has tried to yeah. uh, pursue more science fiction films they've been ambitious things like uh, Space Sweepers as well a couple of sure. years ago but They've all been rather disappointing. Uh, there is one more element about this film that's made headlines. Uh, Jason, yeah. the role of Chang Yi's grown daughter, is uh, played by Kang soo who tragically passed away last year. Does that perhaps change any of the experience of watching the film? Um, yes, it did, actually, because her character is so kind of, you know, she's sombre throughout much of it. She's dealing with, you know, the, the, the fact that... Uh, her mother is this, you know, this this what you know, this warrior, and she's got you've got these experiments going on, and she's also sick as well. So um, the fact that she, you know, tragically and suddenly passed away, uh, I think just adds adds, yeah, I guess a layer there that wasn't really there when they made the film. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, she's a terrific actress. Um, you know, she she won. Uh, the first kind of leading actress award at a major festival in Europe for her role 
in Surrogate Woman, so yeah, at the Venice Film Festival. So uh, a huge figure in the industry, and she'll be sadly missed, and she's very much centre here. And it's a shame the film isn't better, because she, she is actually really good in it. Sure, it is a sad loss. Uh, Darcy, before we move on, a quick word on the director, Yun sang After Train to Busan, it seems like his subsequent words have failed up to live to that standard he set with that film. He's a director with a really interesting career because he began his career making low-budget, independent animation. And we'll talk more about animation in a second. But, And then unexpectedly, he was given the opportunity to direct this blockbuster-scale film, Train to Busan, and he did an incredibly good job with it. And I'm always, I'm still a little baffled by that because, you know, the skills that you need to make an animated film are completely different from yeah. the skills you need to make a, a big budget zombie spectacular. <laughs> but he did that so well. Um, but there is something, you know, I think in terms of his storytelling and his, um, there's something very kind of minor about his taste. And I'm not saying that as a criticism in any way. Uh, but it always kind of struck me that either you give him kind of a smaller scale project where he can mm. kind of give full rein to his, you know, particular vision. And it is a very dark kind of perspective that he has on the world. Uh, or perhaps you give him a bigger project that maybe is written by another screenwriter, but, you know, mm. then he takes that and turns it into a blockbuster project. And, you know, here too, I think he handles the action sequence as well. He handles the scale of the film. And that's really hard to do. There are few directors who can handle that. But um, but I think there there is a script problem. Okay, well, that was our review of Chongyi, which is available to watch now on Netflix. Let's continue on to our second film. It's a stop-motion animated movie from Korean director Park Jae-bum. It's called Motherland. The title in Korean is Ammae Tang. Premiered at the Busan International Film Festival last fall, and it also received a special mention from the Seoul Independent Film Festival. Darcy, can you tell us more about this film? Yes, the director Park Jae-bom has been specialising in stop-motion animation. He's made a number of short films in recent years. And so this is his feature debut. It was produced by one of Korea's top film schools, the Korean Academy of Film Art. And it's interesting in that the main characters in the film are not Korean. It's set in this tundra region of Siberia uh, in the 20th century. The family at the center of the story are these nomadic kind of reindeer breeders who uh, live a very traditional lifestyle. And then the mother falls ill. Uh, the father leaves for the city to get medicine for her. But their daughter, who has kind of a particular spiritual energy about her, uh, she has this vision of a mythical bear that you know, is known as the master of the forest. And a shaman tells her that this bear knows ways to heal people and ways to stop suffering. So she decides to set off and to find this master, this bear, mm. and to hopefully heal her mother. Uh, so she intends to go alone, but her little brother kind of stashes himself along, as little brothers sometimes do. <laughs> okay, so Jason, it sounds like quite an unusual ethereal film with its... Uh... Siberian historical yeah. setting and spiritual themes. Uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, no, it's pretty good. Um, I watched it in Busan uh, last year. Um, I watched it on my computer, unfortunately. I wish I watched it on, on the big screen because mm. visually, you know, it's a really interesting movie. It's got, it was basically created with stop motion puppets and then enhanced with CGI. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very snowy and it's very, very colourful. Um, the story is a little bit... Uh, I mean, it's simple, you know, it's, there's not really much depth to it. Um, but it's only, you know, I think an hour and 10 minutes, it, it, it kind of goes by at a pretty brisk pace. So uh, it's structurally, it's pretty sound, visually, it's good. 
Um, and yeah, it's it's a charming film. I wouldn't say it was my favourite film I saw in Busan last year, but I I do think it was an interesting movie coming out of Cafe. You know, they don't normally uh, make uh, animations, so it's not normally live action movies that they produce. So uh, lots of talent coming out of these schools, and clearly that's that's evident here as well. Right, charming, but I feel like it didn't really touch you. Should I say? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean. It wasn't a film that I didn't connect with in, mm. in a really kind of powerful way, and that may be just down to the, the the nature of the animation more than anything else. You know, I, I, other than the story and the fact that it lacked, you know, lots of layers, I don't think I, there's there's much I can really criticise about the film. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it didn't. I didn't connect with it in a really powerful way, uh, and nor did I expect to. But that's not to say that others won't. Darcy, what about you? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, it's one of those films that may be affected partly by how you view it as well, because seeing it as part of a film festival where there are all these other Korean films making their premiere. And this film, uh, it's really kind of at a different, targeted a different sort of market. Hmm. And it's interesting because it, uh, you know, it's the kind of film that children can certainly watch and enjoy. And there's nothing, you know, scary about the film. And it's uh, the main characters are children. So in that sense, it's, uh, you can call it a children's film. Although I think it's the sort of film that adults might enjoy a little bit more than children, because uh, it's really hard, you know, as a parent, I know this, it's really hard to to tell a story that really grabs kids and, you know, Disney's good at it and Pixar's good at it. But, sure. Um, but it is, you know, I think that I was really impressed with the visuals of the film. Uh, I liked the story of it. I, uh, it did kind of pull me into its, you know, world as I was watching it. And, you know, Korean cinema has never produced anything like this before. Uh, so in that sense, I, um, yeah, I, I do want to support the film and encourage people to see it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's lots to like about the film, even though I didn't necessarily <laughs> love it. <laughs> but it's, it's good. It's a good film. OK, so once again, that's Motherland. It's out now in Korean cinemas. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time, as always. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah. Take care. Have a great weekend. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. We wrap up the week here on Korea 24 by looking ahead to what's happening next week in our segment Next Week from Seoul. And joining us in the studio now, it's not Richard. We have a guest contributor today. It is the familiar friend of the show, <laughs> Hannah Roberts, our Explore Korea travel explorer, filling in today. Hannah, 
Hello, it's a great to see you on a Friday. It's great to be here on a Friday. Yes, thank you for filling in today. Not at all. Okay, we have to get cracking. So, what's the first thing we should look out for next week? So, next week, President Yoon Song Yeol is expected to meet the Chief of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, as well as with the US Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, in Seoul early next week. In these meetings, which are scheduled to take place at the presidential office in Yongsan, President Yoon will be discussing ongoing global crises and reaffirming his alignment with the global community in overcoming the crises. The restoration of global supply chains is also expected to be broached during these meetings. There is also potential for the discussion of security issues, such as the Russia-Ukraine war or North Korea's nuclear tests, though it's as yet unconfirmed whether these topics will be brought up. Yes, yeah, so these meetings haven't been confirmed yet, but we do expect them to happen. They are highly likely to happen, so that's something to look out for mm-hmm. next week. OK, a y moving on, what's the next thing we should look out for next week? As discussed earlier on the show... Uh, Lee Jae-myung, the leader of the main opposition Democratic Party, will appear tomorrow to face questioning from the prosecution for his involvement in the Daejeongdong scandal. It's alleged that he gave business favours to help an asset management company join a land development project in the city of Songnam while working as the city's mayor. Summoned early last week, Lee has agreed to attend the questioning, yet continues to deny his involvement in the scandal, instead accusing the prosecution of working with political motive. Yes, we'll look to cover the major developments uh, from that on our show Monday. Uh, Let's move on to our final story for today. What do you have for us? So after more than two years of wearing masks indoors since the mask mandate was imposed in October 2020, starting next Monday, indoor masking restrictions will be lifted across South Korea. Mm. From January 30th, masks will no longer be mandatory in indoor spaces, instead becoming a recommendation. This is the first of two stages to phase out masks with the rate of new COVID-19 cases in South Korea stabilising, as well as a reduction in critical cases and deaths. Health authorities are also satisfied with the number of intensive care beds available to treat serious cases of the infection, as well as with the level of immunity among high-risk groups. Several indoor spaces remain an exception to this relaxation of the rules, however, with masks still being required on all public transport, as well as in hospitals, nursing homes, psychological healthcare facilities and welfare centres for people with disabilities. Yes, this is going to be a big milestone for South Korea's fight against COVID-19. No masks anymore (laughs) at uh, restaurants, uh, cafes, shopping malls and, of course, in offices as well. So that's going to be a big change from Monday. Okay, that's where we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you for bringing us those previews, Hannah. And we'll see you again next time. See you next time. And that's all from us here at Career24 today. We'll be back on Monday, so do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great weekend. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune into One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. 
On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio.